Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. Good to see you. Listen, just a second service. You guys can be a little bit better than that. Good morning. All right. Are you guys ready for a new series in Galatians? This is going to be great. Turn your Bibles to Galatians 1. We're going to be in Galatians. This is a new book series. Um, you know, as I was thinking about how to introduce this, uh, the, the tone of the letter, uh, before we get into all the details, you know, doing a lot, little introduction this morning. We're just going to be in the first five verses as, as was read this morning. Um, but these are, this is one of the letters of Paul that, that he wrote to a church. Paul was a church planter. You can read a lot about his life in the book of Acts. In Genesis chapters 13 and 14, Paul goes on a missionary journey and plants a number of churches. He goes to these cities and he announces who Jesus was and announces how he had died for them. And, and he just they, all these people respond to the, to the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And um, what happens is as he leaves, after he starts his churches, people come in and they start teaching a different message. And so Paul is writing this letter in response to what people are hearing from another, from another source. Uh, the best way I can describe it is imagine you as a parent, you, you raise your kids up and you send them off to university or college and you have given them your values, you've given them your beliefs, you've, you've, tried, to, you've tried to shape them and mold them in, in a way of faith or, or ethics or, or principles or convictions, and, but they go and they leave your house. And when they get to their, their, their university or college, they start hearing other viewpoints, other messages, other ideas. And when you hear that your son or your daughter is being impacted by some of these messages, how do you respond? What do you do? What's the tone you would take with your child if they were starting to get distracted or, or the messages that you taught them were becoming corrupted by other messages? Well, I don't know about you, but as a dad myself, I would be like, Hey, this is, this is a serious conversation I'm going to have with you. And that's exactly the tone that Paul gives in this letter. You, you, you can sense that Paul, in, in the middle of his ministry, hears about what's going on with these churches he's planted. And the, the tone he uses, some of the language, there's, there's, a, there's a sense of urgency that he writes with in this letter. And, and not just a sense of urgency, he uses some hyperbole, to, to describe like what he, what he wants them to understand. And so there's this sense that Paul's saying, hey, you better pay attention because the gospel is becoming corrupted. You're becoming confused about what the good news of Jesus is. And if you lose that, you lose sight of what Jesus was really all about. And you're going to get swayed in this direction, in that direction. All the work that God wants to do in your life is going to be stunted or it's going to be corrupted by these false teachers. And so, so that's, the, that's, the, that's the context, that's the tone of this letter. And, and so you're always saying, like, what are these people saying? How are these people going in after Paul, and why are they teaching these things? Well, um, you know, it's really important that you understand, as, as harsh language as Paul uses with the, the people in, uh, that are teaching another gospel, um, if I shared with you their reasoning, some of you might be like, hmm, I can see their, their point. Because like, you might be wondering, like, what is the big deal? Well, the big deal is circumcision. Now, we're going to talk about circumcision more in the next few weeks than probably you have in your entire life. But the, the reality is, in the Old Testament, when God made a covenant with Abraham to, for the Jewish people to be his chosen people, he said the sign of the covenant is circumcision. 
Well, when Paul goes and plants these churches, and he tells them the gospel, the good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. He's announcing something, and he's announcing to both Jews and Gentiles, hey, listen, there's a way to God through Jesus Christ. And it's not by what you have done. It's not by what you have achieved, but it's about what Jesus has achieved for you and taking your penalty for you on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he's explaining this, and so the people are coming behind him and saying, listen, Paul only told you about the cross. No, there's so much more to it. I mean, he didn't tell you about the Old Testament. He didn't tell you about Abraham. and Mo- He didn't tell you about the Ten Commandments. He didn't tell you about circumstances. Listen, if you really, do you, does, does obeying the whole book of the Bible matter to you or just a little bit? Well, if you want to obey the whole book, you've got to go back to the Old Testament. If you really want to be a follower of God, you've got to do away with your cultural expression. You've got to be circumcised. And you've got to start observing the law of Moses. That's going to make you a true Christian. Now, what was happening was that message was getting conflated with Paul's message of it's Christ alone that saves you. But you can sense this church is hearing from one group of people, hey, don't you want to obey the whole Bible? Don't you want to be faithful to all of God's word? And then you have Paul saying, no, it's Jesus alone. And you can sense this tension that Paul is writing to these people saying, listen, you've got to get clarity on the pure gospel. This is so important today because I believe that if, if we don't get clarity, we'll have a lot of confusion. And then when you're confused about what the genuine, true, pure gospel is, you're not going to be sure what to do. I remember uh, I was at a basketball game one time with my brother. My brother is two years older than me. He, I was a sophomore. He was a senior. I, this was the year he was going to a Christian school. I was going to public school. Um, and my brother is six foot five. He's He's kind of built. He's, he's, an, he's a more natural athlete than I am. He's a pretty good basketball player. And so he was playing for our Christian school. And, um, you know, there was this moment where we didn't have a really good basketball coach back then. And he was just, you know, he, I think he knew a little bit about basketball, but not that much. And so uh, he had this, we were playing this team, and I was sitting and watching. My, I'm with my dad. Now, this is before the modern day go and, oh, you can only clap for your kids at soccer games. You know what I'm talking about? Like when, I, when we put our kids into soccer or in sports, they have these signs like, you can only say something positive. I'm like, well, what's the fun of that, you know? <laughs> well, my dad never got that memo. And, and uh, so there was this moment where, where my, my, the coach had their, the team press. And when you press another team, when they try to inbounds the ball, their team is up trying to guard them from cross, making it more difficult to get the ball across half court. And so my brother's the center. He's the last guy in this press, and he's standing at half court. Well, the other team figures out what they're doing, and they just lob the ball over my brother, who's six foot five, three times in a row. And so my dad, who always wanted to be a coach, starts talking to my brother. He says, Chris, back up, back up. They're throwing it over you. And so my brother does this, and, and then my coach, co- coach is like, Chris, move up, move up. And Chris does this. He moves up a little bit. This one, my dad yells, like, back up, back up. And my coach is Move up. And so Chris is doing this. Finally, the coach yells. And again, this is inside the gym. Coach yells across, Chris, who are you going to listen to? Him or me? And my dad yells, Me. <laughs> At that moment, I looked to my friend and said, Let's go. Like, I don't want to be in this gym right now. The, the, the confusion of, do, do I move up? Do, do I move back? was confusing because he was hearing two different messages. What's happening in our culture today 
even within the church, is that you will hear different messages of what the gospel is. And there needs to be clarity. We need gospel clarity to understand what is the gospel and what is not. What is truly good news and what is not good news. Because every generation and every person was going to have to decide, am I going to listen to what the word of God says, what God has to say about the gospel, or am I going to listen to what man has to say about the gospel? And what is so typical of, 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 our, of every generation is there will be a group of people that will come along. Sometimes there are even religious people or church people, and they'll say, well, you know, what the Bible says is this, but that was very cultural, but this is how we interpret it today. And so whether, whether you hear messages from the political left or the political right, there are always going to be groups of people that want to hijack the gospel and corrupt it and say, this is what Jesus really meant. And we've got to make sure we know who Jesus was and what he really meant. We need clarity. There's, there's, I want to start my sermon today with asking you guys five questions. I normally end my sermon with, five, with questions. But, you know, I learned a really great book I read in college, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. I'm not sure if you've ever read it. Great book. But he talks about this one principle, begin, begin with the end in mind. And I thought about what are the, what are the, what's the clarity that I hope we as a church have at the end of our study of this book. And the five questions I want to share with you are this. Number one, the first question of clarity is, do you understand the gospel? When I say gospel, when we talk about gospel, we're not talking about a type of music, even though it's kind of, you know, what do you mean by gospel? Yeah, you're saying it means good news, but what is the gospel? You might have some fuzziness, and you're like, if someone asks me, what do you understand the gospel? I'm not sure if I could do it. I mean, Andy's story this morning, remember he, he got out and he drew those three circles to explain the gospel and he asked the guys, do you understand what I'm explaining to you? That's the first question. The second question is this, do you believe the gospel? See, it's one thing to have a head knowledge of God and a head knowledge of Jesus and a head knowledge of the things of the Bible, but do I believe it? And again, that was Andy's second question, so where, where do you fall in this diagram? How have you responded personally to the reality of what we talked about, the good news of Jesus? That's a question every single person in this room has to ask. Do I believe it? Or is it something that's just kind of there, but I've never really engaged with it? The third question is this. Can you articulate the gospel? You know, maybe you understand it. Maybe you've believed it in your heart. But maybe if someone comes up to you and said, hey, put a microphone in your face. Tell me what the gospel is. You're like, uh, like. I kind of know it, but I don't know if I could share it, right? That's important. Number three, can you articulate the gospel? Number four, can you defend the gospel? I mean, Paul is writing this letter because someone is attacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you better know what's happening. Can you identify false arguments and ways in which the gospel can be corrupted? And can you defend against it? That's really important. If we're going to claim to be followers of Jesus, can we defend the truth of Jesus? And then lastly, the last question is, how is the gospel changing you now? Is the gospel something that's just there and it's in your past? Or is it actively a part of the way that God is sanctifying you or changing you into the image of Jesus? Those are the five questions I want you to think about as we're beginning this sermon and as we're beginning the series. Because no matter where you are, there was a, probably a point in those five questions you said, I can't answer that one. Or I don't know what the answer is to that. And that's why we're doing this study. That's why we're studying Galatians. What my prayer and my hope is for you, 
what my prayer and hope is for this church is that no matter where you are in that list of questions, you're able to take, you know, through this study, a, a couple questions further down the road in your spiritual journey. That's really important. So, so the main idea I want to leave us with this morning is this. Number one, or the main idea is this. We all need clarity about the pure gospel. We all need clarity about the pure gospel. We need to know what did Jesus, who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and is it really truly a part of my life? Have I responded genuinely to the good news of Jesus? Well, how, what's the clarity we need? Number one, the gospel is Jesus' message to us. The gospel is Jesus' message to us. Let's look at verse one again. Again, this is just the, the, the greeting, but what I find here in this greeting, in these first five verses, is Paul's going to introduce themes in this passage that he's going to revisit later on. So these are the main issues. If you go look at all of Paul's letters, some of them are just like one or two verses. This is five verses with a lot more detail than is typical. And the reason he's doing that is he's introducing the ideas up front of what he's going to be talking about further down in his letter. So he says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The first thing that Paul was trying to say is, listen, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying this as like, hey, look at me, I'm an apostle. Like he's, he's not wearing this like badge, apostle badge. He doesn't have the apostle parking sign at the church. This is not what Paul's about. What is the, why is Paul making a big deal about him being an apostle? Well, when, we th- when you and I think about the word apostle, what do we think about? Well, it's some like religious Christian term that someone who's really high up in the, in, in the church, which again, if you read the scriptures, yes, there were 12 people that, got, that Jesus called to be apostles. But there is a cultural understanding, a first century Roman understanding of this word. And the, the, the meaning of this word, the idea of an apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. And an apostolos had a word that was used in an official capacity. So, for example, if you were a governor or a king or, or someone in authority and you wanted to share a very specific message with a group of people, you would send an apostolos, which means sent one. You would send an apostolos, someone who would represent your authority, but would also speak for you. So that when that apostolos showed up in town to say, this is what the king says, you would say, that guy is speaking for the king. If the king was standing right here, this is exactly what that king or that governor would say. That's the idea of apostolos. What, what, what Paul is doing, he's not defending himself. He's not saying, hey, I, hey, I'm an apostle. And some of you people don't think I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. Like, that's not what Paul's doing. He's not making it about him. Because what ha- was happening is these people are coming in and saying, well, Paul, I mean, Paul didn't even spend time with Jesus. I mean, you have all these apostles in Jerusalem. You have Peter, you have John, you have James. I mean, all, you got all these guys in. And Paul wasn't even around when he lived. He's not a true apostle. And, and what you actually have is you have Peter or Paul's conversion story in the book of Acts when he's on his road to Damascus. Paul was actually someone who hated Christians who is going to imprison them, but Jesus invades Paul's life and he confronts him and a bright light speaks to him. And in that moment, Paul's life is forever changed and he becomes a follower of Jesus. 
And he becomes a follower of Jesus, and God calls him. Jesus says, I want you to be my apostle to the Gentiles. It's exactly what it talks about in the book of Acts, chapter 9. And so Paul's got this calling. He's been given this message. And what Paul is saying here, when he's saying, I'm an apostle, not from men or from man, but through Jesus Christ, what he's saying is this. The message I shared with you, the gospel, when I was there and I shared with you the gospel, that message that I shared with you, that's the real message. I, spoke, I speak for Jesus in that way. These people are telling you I'm not a real apostle. I am. And you know my story. He's going to share his story again in this letter to remind them of that he's got the credentials. But it's not just about the credentials that people think he's great. It's because Paul's saying the message I'm sharing with you is important. My message is not just my message. This message is Jesus' message. And so one of the things that I think we see today, uh, especially in our culture, uh, you know, people read the, a lot of the letters of Paul and they're like, oh man, Paul's just, he's just not politically correct. And we don't like, I don't like Paul, but I like Jesus. Here, here's what you have to understand. Let me just address something for you. Um, first of all, the Bible is going to offend every person in every culture at some point. Okay? It's just going to happen. Because the Bible confronts culture when culture goes off. When, when, when culture does not reflect the true God ideas for humanity, it's going to confront people. And there are certain things that Paul writes that if you were to stand up and say it in certain places in our world, they would think you are hateful or you're a bigot or you're this or you're that. But let me just tell you something. When Paul is writing and when Paul is speaking, he is speaking for Jesus. And there's nothing that Paul writes that Jesus doesn't back up and say, you go, Paul. It doesn't exist. Paul's not off on his own doing his own thing. Paul represents Jesus. And when he writes things and then when he says things, he's speaking and representing Jesus. And we need to remember that. And the reason why that's so important is because there's going to be times when people attack you for what you believe. If you really believe in the gospel and you really understand the gospel and you articulate the gospel, there's going to come times when people say, I think what you're saying is hurtful. I think what you're saying is hateful. And you've got to separate yourself from the message and say, listen, you can attack me, but the message, I'm not going to back down. You know, we see this. One of the ways that you see an opposing side destroy an argument is to destroy the messenger of the, the argument. You see this all the time in politics, don't you? When there's a presidential candidate or there's a Supreme Court nominee and they put them up there and, and people, one of, the, one of the most basic common ways to attack another, per, another person's ideas and message is to attack the person. And if you can attack the person uh, and then you say, well, if this person's corrupt, then their message therefore is corrupt. It's called the ad hominem argument. And it's not, it's not a true argument because some, you could have a very flawed person sharing with you a very true message. But what Paul is saying is this, my, my character and my message, it's not about me. I didn't come up with this because the, the, the apostles in Jerusalem said, okay, Paul, you're great. Now go do this. He said, even if they did say that, that's not why I have authority. I have authority and this message is right and good and true because Jesus gave it to me. And that's what we need to hold on to. The purity of the message of Jesus. The gospel is Jesus' message to us. We all need it. We all need the gospel. I don't care where you are. I don't care how you grew up. I don't care if you grew up your entire, every Sunday going to church or if you've never darkened the doors of a church and this is your first Sunday. The gospel is for all of us. 
The gospel's for every ethnicity. We're going to see this in this letter play out that there was a huge ethnic challenge, you know, a disparity going on within the congregation. And Paul's going to say the gospel solves that. The gospel is for everyone. It's God's message to us. That's number one. Number two, the gospel is Jesus' resurrection for us. The gospel is Jesus' resurrection for us. Look how he ends, or how he, again, ends this first verse. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him, who raised Jesus from the dead. See, what I love about this phrase is that the reality of our faith, the Christian faith, is rooted in history. Jesus rose from the dead. We base our faith not on a set of principles. We don't base our faith on a philosophy, though there are principles and philosophy to the Christian faith. Our faith is built upon an historical event that Jesus was a man who lived 2,000 years ago, and we believe that he was fully God, fully man, and he died on the cross. But it wasn't just a human death. There was something spiritual that happened on that cross. And he went to the grave, but he rose again three days later. Now, what is so impactful about this statement is this. Paul most likely writes this letter around 48, 49 AD. That is, count, count it, 15 years most likely removed from the actual events of Jesus' death and resurrection. 15 years. He's putting in writing, and this is one of the things that all of the, the writers of the New Testament do because they saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul saw the resurrected Jesus. He knew the resurrected, resurrected Jesus. They could be eyewitnesses to say, listen, I know you've never seen it, but I have. It's the idea of being an eyewitness to a real human event that you lived through. They say, I know it happened because I went through it and I saw it. Now, just think about this. 15 years ago, 15 years ago was 2008. What happened in 2008? The crash, right? Some of you had, had went through it that, that year. Some of you had, a, had lost, maybe you lost your home, maybe you lost your retirement. 2008 was a horrible year financially for this nation. And it's called the Great Recession. And we lived through that. I lived through that. And well, in 30, 40 years, if someone talks about the Great Recession, someone's like, oh, I'm not sure if that really happened. What can you do? You can be like, no, I lived through it. I experienced it. I walked through that myself. Paul is saying Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a, our, our faith is built on a historical reality, but it's not just a historical event. It's just a spiritual pronouncement being made here. Paul's saying, yes, this is a true event because if someone wants to doubt this, we've got eyewitnesses that can confront this. But number two, he rose from the dead to tell us something. That death, our greatest enemy, we don't have to fear anymore. See, what is true about all of us, you know, all of us come in here, with different, we're all different ages, we all have different backgrounds, different educational, you know, experiences, human experiences. But you know what awaits all of us? Death. We can't get away from it. We are going to face death one day, all of us. Death is the great equalizer and it's the great enemy of humanity. And we know where, why death entered into the world, entered into the world at the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned against God. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to answer the, the world's biggest problem, humanity's biggest problem, and that is to die for us and to raise from the dead so that even though we walk into this world facing a physical death, but also experiencing a spiritual death, that we are separated from God, that Jesus came to unite and save us from both of those things. 
that we would be united with God once again. And that we would not have to, that death would not be the end, but that resurrection and a future in God, in heaven with him, is before us when we put our faith and trust in him. That death doesn't have to be the final chapter of our story. And that's exactly what the gospel is all about. It's teaching you, that's the good news. You, you have given, Christ, through Christ, he's given you the power to overcome the grave. Don't fear it anymore. And so, so that's the, the beauty of the gospel. Num- number three, the gospel is Jesus relating to us. The gospel is Jesus relating to us. Look at the next verse here. Or verse two, it says, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And then sh- verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to look at all of Paul's letters, and even some of Peter's and John's letters, they begin their letter with these two words, grace and peace. Grace to you and peace from, from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace. Now, why? Have you ever wondered, like, why does, why does Paul use these two words? I mean, was he kind of like, man, what are some really good Christian words to use? Like, I want people to really feel good about what I'm saying, and I can get people feeling good, like grace, grace and peace. Like, oh, let's listen to him, you know? Is that what Paul's doing? No, Paul's actually, when he uses grace and peace, there is a theological statement he's making here, but there's also a cultural statement he's making with these two words. For example, did you know that in the the Gentile way of greeting people, and the Greek way of greeting people back in those days was to use the word karein, Karain was the word that says, hello, greetings, good to see you. That was, their, that was their word for greeting. The Jewish word was shalom. I'm not sure if you've ever watched the show, um, The Chosen, but you know, if you've watched the word, show, The Chosen, when people are coming in and you know, people are introducing each of them to each other or they're leaving, they always say shalom, 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 shalom. Well, shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. What Paul is using here is he's using a, a Gentile word and a Hebrew word, because grace is not karain. Grace is the Greek word charis. So Paul's using a little a, a, a word, play on words here to say, listen, I know you're used to saying karain, but as a Christian, I want you to think about grace. Grace and peace. Jews and Gentiles, I want you to understand. I want you to come together. There's something more important than your own cultural expression of what you're doing here. Because if the Jews are coming into this church, the Judaizers is what they're calling, saying, if you really want to follow God, you got to become like a Jew. Paul is saying, no, there's something bigger. There's there's a more important culture that Jesus is establishing, a gospel culture. The gospel culture that confronts everyone's culture. And yes, grace and peace. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, the message of the gospel is for you. But he's saying something even more than cultural in these two words. He's making a theological statement. Because grace and peace is how Paul is saying is this is how we relate to God. We relate to Jesus Christ through the grace he's given to us and the peace he's given to us. It's grace and peace. These two words are so powerful. What Paul is saying is I want you, everything I'm sharing with you, I want you to Put this in the context of grace and peace. What, what is that? Why is that so important? Because grace is this idea of undeserved favor. This idea that you have been loved by God first. The idea that you have been made acceptable by God through his death, through his resurrection. 
See, this is a brand new way of relating, not just to God, but to all humanity. The way that we operate as human beings in our normal everyday life, in our normal everyday interaction with people is this. Performance equals acceptance. That's how you live your life for most, most of it. Performance equals acceptance. If I perform, if I meet up to your, this other person's expectations, whether it's my mom or dad, or whether it's my spouse, or whether it's my coworkers or my neighbors, if I meet your expectations, if I perform these, these issues within the relationship, then I, it will equal love and acceptance. I will be loved and accepted by you as long as I'm doing what I should be doing to you. That is how we typically relate to human beings, right? This is what we do. I will not accept you if you don't perform for me. And and we even bring this idea into religion. That's why every man-made religion has the same system. You have to, whatever God's up there, whether it's a God singular or God's plural, whatever human religious system we've created, the the way of the human system is this. You must perform in order to be accepted by that God or gods. That is, you can, you can spot a man-made religion a mile away because that is the system. The reason why the, the way of faith in Christ is different is because Jesus turns that narrative up on, on its head. Jesus came and he paid the penalty for our sins. And he lived that righteous life for us so that all of a sudden he makes us acceptable before we perform. That's unbelievable. That's grace. That's peace. We can have peace with God because we have been made right with God, not by how we perform, not by a list of rules, by you know, keeping a list of laws in the Bible. It's not by attaining a certain level of achievement according to what holy people say. No, it's about Christ did something for me. And if I accept and embrace what Jesus did for me, I am made right with Jesus Christ. I'm made right with God, and now I have peace. You know, many of you know I'm going back to school. I'm getting my master's in, in, in counseling psychology. And so when I have projects or papers to write, I try to write a paper that's actually going to help me in my field as a pastor. And I had to write a, I had to write a paper on a, on a certain um, you know, mental health issue. And had to, it had to be research-based. And I wrote a paper on how attending church helps anxiety. Did you know that? Attending church helps anxiety. There's a lot of reasons for it. A lot of researchers are like, we don't understand why. And I'm like, I know why. <laughs> I know exactly why. Well, n- well, number one, did you know that God created you with this thing in your body called the vagus nerve? The vagus nerve is a nerve that runs from the back of your head all the way to your gut. It's the largest nerve in your body. And that's why when something's going, when you're having thoughts in your brain that are kind of disruptive and you feel sick to your stomach, that's your, your vagus nerve is activated. But one of the things that, that helps calm your vagus nerve, which kind of deals with a lot of anxiety, that's where you feel the, the anxiety is in your vagus nerve. And it attached, the parts of your brain attached there. But to soothe the vagus nerve in your body, they say there's seven things you can do, three of which you do at church. You socialize and meet with people, talk with people. You sing, and you're in, you have meditation time or you're learning something about God. Three things that calm the vagus nerve happen at church every single week. And, and that's how God's created our bodies. But I think it's even more than that. Because I think when you, come to, when you come to a gathering like this and you open up God's word and you're singing songs about the truth 
of the gospel, and you hear the message of the gospel that says this, it is not about how you perform for God that makes you acceptable. Christ Jesus loves you the way you are. He died for your sins, and he want, he's made you acceptable to him. All you've got to do is you've got to place your faith and trust in him. Stop trying to earn your favor with God. When you're trying to earn your favor with people, how does that feel? It's anxiety. It's, it's turmoil. You're always wondering, how am I doing? That's not the way with God. That's not what Jesus came to do. He came to give you peace with him. He's taken, the performance has been taken care of by Jesus Christ. And when you understand that, that gives you peace. So, the gospel is Jesus relating to us in a new way. It's not about you performing for acceptance. It's about Jesus making you acceptable through his death and resurrection. And all you've got to do is accept it and believe in it. That's the message of the gospel. That's how we relate to God. And when we relate to God that way, that's how we'll relate to each other. See, what the people of the Galatians, that they were saying is, no, you've got to perform. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to obey the law of Moses. And Paul's saying that's not it at all. It's Jesus plus nothing. Number four, the gospel is Jesus delivering us now. The gospel is Jesus delivering us now. Look again, it says in verse three and four, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Underline those six words, who gave himself for our sins. There's a couple times in scripture when there's like this beautiful phrase that the gospel writers write and say, this, this, this encompasses the, the gospel. Jesus came for our sins. I love that. Jesus who gave himself for our sins. That's one phrase that encompasses the gospel. There's a couple other times, I think it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when, when Paul writes, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. That's another great statement of the gospel. Another time he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin, Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6.23. There are these moments in Paul's writings when he just takes a few words and just says, this is the gospel. Right here, these six words, Jesus gave himself for our sins, is one of the most beautiful statements in all the Bible. See, we are sinners. We have offended a holy God. But God loves us enough to send us a deliverer. He sent us Jesus to say, you can't save yourself. You can't earn your way to heaven. So this is why I'm sending Jesus, to earn heaven for you. And this idea of deliverance, deliverance from sin. Look, look at the second part of this phrase. To deliver us from the present evil age. See, Jesus came, there, salvation, when God saves us and God delivers us, it happens in a number of different stages. Okay? What I mean by that is this. The moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's what the Bible calls, the theological term is justified. Paul writes about it in the book of Romans and other places. This idea of being justified is just a legal term that means you are declared righteous. Even though you are a sinner and you've committed acts against a holy God, because Jesus, Jesus died for you, well, his, he was your substitute for you, his 
account of righteousness now is on your account before God. And so now you are justified. You're declared righteous. The good news is that you don't have to earn or work for salvation. Jesus did it for you. And what that promises you is this other term that the Bible uses, that when you die, you will be glorified. Romans chapter 8 says, those whom, God justif- those whom God calls, he justifies, and those whom he justifies, he will glorify. Glorification is the moment that when you die, you will be in God's presence forever, and that you will no longer struggle with sin. You'll no longer have any bad thoughts. You'll no longer have any kind of addictions or any kind of problems, but you will be made righteous before God perfectly. But you see, it, and we know that the gospel's for that. Like, the gospel saves me, and the gospel promises me eternal life. But I think for a lot of us as Christians, that's how we use the gospel. Like, the gospel is, all the gospel is, is our Christian retirement plan. Like, I don't know what's, what you, what's happened to you, but I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven one day, and I got my ticket. I got my Jesus ticket. The gospel says I'm saved, and when I die, I'm going to heaven. Is that true? Absolutely. Yes, the, the, the Bible says that God saves us from condemnation. He saves us from a future separated from God in hell. But you see, what Paul says with this statement is not, he's not saying, he's not talking about that. What does he say? Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. You see, in between as followers of Jesus, when we are saved and we are justified, and whether it's days, weeks, years, decades, before that moment that we die and are in God's presence, there is this other term that the Bible uses. And it's this term called sanctification. And that's just a religious word that means it's the process by which God is transforming you into his image. That every single day when I wake up, I, am, I can choose to be more like Jesus or more like me. Or I can be more like the world. Or I can do my own thing instead of God's thing. And what Paul is making the declarative statement right here, because this is what these people were doing. Why does Paul say that? He's saying that because the people are coming and saying, if you really want to get your life right, you've got to, you've got to obey the law. The law is going to keep you on the straight and narrow. And what Paul's going to do, the first four chapters of Galatians in this letter is all about making sure they have clarity on what the gospel is. But the last two chapters, our chapters, chapters five and six, are all about how the gospel changes you now. The gospel isn't just for saving you for justification. It's not just for making sure you go to heaven when you die. The gospel is used by God to change the way we think and to motivate us in how we live in this present age. The gospel is for today. The gospel isn't just the door to enter into the house of Christianity. The gospel is the house. The gospel isn't just the diving board into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool. And what we've got to understand is that as much as we can never move away from the gospel and think, okay, it's all up to me now. Okay, I I, I obey, I, I gave Jesus my life, but now it's up to me to make sure I achieve holiness on my own. I've got to work and earn it from now on. Any message, any message that says to make you acceptable, it's Jesus plus works. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus I give money. Whatever it is, the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. Etch it in stone in your heart. 
There's no other message. There's no other message. Jesus plus nothing equals the gospel. And so what Paul is saying here is, listen, if you truly want the power to live for him, to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, there's some things going on around you and there's things going on in you as you're seeking to follow God. The gospel is the thing that helps you achieve that. The gospel is the thing that motivates you, that teaches you how to live righteously. Let's not use, let's not just, let's not relegate the gospel to our Christian retirement plan. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. Lastly, number five, the gospel is Jesus' glory forever. The gospel is Jesus' glory forever. The last thing he says, who delivers us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our in Father, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, that's not just a little add-on tagline to make you know, God happy. The idea of God's glory is fundamental to the Christian life. That we have been created in God's image to give him glory to worship and praise his name. And the reason why he says to, to, to him be the glory forever and ever and why it relates to the gospel is this. If Jesus truly is the one who's done all the work, if he's the one who's made us acceptable because of his performance, because of his life, and it's not about us, it's not about what we achieve to make us, accept, to make us acceptable, then when we sing and when we praise and when we worship, man, it is, I'm singing and praising because God did all the work. I can sing differently. I can worship differently. If it's about me, if it's dependent on me, if it is Jesus plus my effort equals salvation, then eventually what's going to happen is, I shared this last week, you will either get incredibly proud or incredibly exhausted. And that's not the way of God. God wants, God wants and God deserves all the glory. Jesus, the work of salvation begins, is sustained with, and ends with the work of Jesus Christ. That's it. We simply join him on what he's already doing. Let us not ever rob God of the glory he deserves by saying, it was mostly Jesus, but I helped out too. That's not the message of the gospel. It's not the message of the gospel. So, do you have clarity this morning? on what the gospel is. I want to show you those five questions again. I want to show these five questions again that I began the sermon with. Do you understand the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Can you articulate the gospel? Can you defend the gospel? And how is the gospel changing you now? At what point on that slide can you say, I can't answer that next question? I, yes, yes, no. Or, Yes, no. You know, at what point are you saying, that's where I stop? Whatever, wherever you are on this list, here's my invitation to you. Number one, if you have questions, especially about those first two questions today, if you're here and you can't answer those two questions today, I'd love to talk with you. We have people out in the lobby. We have a prayer team, a response team that would love to pray with you to help answer any questions, if, especially those two. Because here's the thing. Those two questions determine whether or not you know, eternity, your eternal destination, and your relationship with Jesus Christ right now. And if you don't know the answers to those two questions, man, I, I invite you to, to don't leave here today without getting those two answers, those two questions answered. But maybe, maybe you're 
further on down the line, maybe you stop at a certain point and say, I can't answer that. I don't know the answer to that question, and I want to. My encouragement to you is this. Keep coming back. Keep, we're going to keep learning how to get clarity on how to do all five questions. And my hope and my prayer of what I believe God wants, God wants a church filled with people that can do all five of these questions. That's why this letter has been given to us. And I believe that's what God wants for you. Don't stay stuck in your engagement with the gospel. Keep moving forward, whatever that next step is. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. You know, before I, before I pray and end our time together, here's the question I have for you. What is the Spirit of God telling you right now of where you're stuck? Maybe you have in your own mind of, yeah, this is where I'm at, but, but what is God saying to you right now? What is God impressing upon your heart saying, hey, you need to answer to this question. You don't have an answer to this question yet. What is he saying to you? My encouragement, my invitation to you today is don't stay there. Lean into God. Lean into the gospel and watch what God does with your life. He loves you. He doesn't want to leave you alone. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. He wants to make all things new in your life. And it's not just about saving you in the future. It's about transforming you now. Father, as we end our time together here this morning, I pray that, Lord, however you are asking us to respond, whatever question we are stuck at, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would would invite us into and bring us along in this journey, God, to give us greater gospel clarity, to give us greater gospel conviction. That, God, we stop listening to men and man and start listening to you. God, may the pure, pure gospel penetrate our hearts and our minds for your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.